So Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. The woman is Israel, the child, the son she gave birth to, obviously Jesus. Now, what I want to point out is that there is a leap, a big leap between verses 5 and 6. A great distance from the catching up of Christ in verse 5, that is the ascension of Jesus, to the flight of the woman in verse 6, which is Israel fleeing into the wilderness. A great leap because we leap from verse 5 to verse 6 right over the church age. We skip right across 2,000 years up to the final three and a half years of what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21, 24. And here, Israel flees. They must flee to a place prepared by God. And Jesus talked about that. In fact, Jesus is the first one to tell Israel to flee. Let's look at that. Matthew 24. Keep your finger in Revelation 12 and go back to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 15... Jesus begins by saying, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And we know from Daniel chapter 9, this is three and a half years into this tribulation period. Three and a half years into the final seven, this seven year period of time, The covenant is made that starts the ball rolling, starts the clock ticking, and in three and a half years, suddenly Antichrist stands up, goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and declares himself to be God. And we learned about this, we've we've been talking about this, and I'm just kind of repeating this so so you're getting this, this time frame down. Three and a half years, he stands up and declares himself to be God. That is the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. What he does not say is, then the church is raptured. And we were just talking about this a minute ago. Deb asked me the question, why do some believers, some Christians persist in saying we're not going to be caught up until three and a half years into the tribulation? I won't tell you exactly what I said at first. (laughs) But what the scriptures teach is the church is not here. Jesus said, Revelation 3, I will keep you from the time of testing that's about to come upon the whole world. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 You are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. Jesus never said, well, maybe a little wrath. I'll give you a bit. Three and a half years, we'll see how you do, and then I'll pull you out. No. He didn't say that at all. And here at the midpoint, the church is not present, but unbelieving Israel is. Or at least Israel that was unbelieving up to the point of the rapture. Now we have believing, we have a remnant of Israel, people who have come to faith in Jesus, they do believe in Jesus, and Jesus tells them, that's when you need to flee to the mountains. I guarantee you, people are going to be studying Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation during the tribulation. 
Bibles are going to be poured over as people begin to see things taking place on the planet that are talked about in Scripture. And someone, I'm going to suspect that many, probably among the 144,000, this will be prime teaching, they'll be saying, when we see this, get ready to run. Because Jesus warned us, when this happens, flee, get out. Whoever is on the housetop, verse 17, must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, the chosen, that is the chosen people Israel, those days will be cut short. But check this out. Jesus says, when you see this happen, when this abomination takes place, flee, get out, run to the wilderness. But marvelously, by the grace of God, they don't run aimlessly. The Jews in Jerusalem don't flee off wildly to the nearest IDF stronghold or Bedouin tent to hide out. They're not just going in all directions. They go to, verse 6, a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Now, if you add that up, by the way, and you try to do three and a half years by, by the Western calendar, with 365 days a year, it doesn't work. This is the Jewish calendar, 360 days in a year, and it's exactly three and a half years by the Jewish calendar, 1,260 days. But she doesn't just flee aimlessly and then is nourished. She flees to a place prepared. That is, God is ready. God is prepared. And, and we read that marvelous prophecy in Hosea, chapter 2, verse 14. I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Verse 15 of Hosea chapter 2. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor as a door of hope. You know what Accor means? It means calamity. As you are racing through the valley and it feels like all calamity is breaking loose around you. No, I'm going to open it up for you as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Hosea 2, 16, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me husband. And in verse 18, and I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety, nourished in a place prepared. I just think that's wonderful. What a contrast to what's going to be going on in the rest of the world at this time. As the chosen people are cared for, fed, nurtured, looked after, tended by God as husband in this place prepared. As we read Sunday at this same time as Antichrist declares his divinity, false as it is, And as Israel flees from Jerusalem, at the same time, the devil is thrown down. This is all happening simultaneously right here at this midpoint. So skipping down to verse 12, because we studied the other verses on Sunday. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because Satan's gone. He's out. Now the heavens can really feel heavenly without this gnawing 
frustrating, annoying dribbling of Satan, accusing everybody who believes in Jesus. He's gone. Heavens rejoice, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So he immediately goes after Israel. Immediately fires off. He couldn't kill the child, either in his birth or in his death. Isn't that great? He could not kill Jesus in Jesus' death. Because three days later, as you know, he rose. After the murder of Jesus, Satan didn't see the resurrection coming. And yet he rose and he ascended, was caught up to the Father, as verse 6 tells us. Well, now he's finally thrown down and he goes after Israel. Well, that's what he's been doing for all history. He's just been going after Israel. He's just going to go right back to what he's always done. By the way, 2018 saw a huge upswing in global anti-Semitism. Hatred against the Jews, both in acts of violence, you may recall just last October at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 11 Jews were killed when they were in the synagogue for worship. Killed by an anti-Semite, a guy who had, who had spoken vile things against Israel up till that point and finally acted on it. We see kills, uh, Jewish people being killed. We see graffiti written against synagogues and on Jewish graves. We see swastikas. We see on a Jewish bakery in Germany the word Juden written. The German word for Jew, which was a byword and a curse back in the 40s. We're seeing behavior in the world right now very similar to the way it was in the 30s in the run-up to the Holocaust. Well, that was 2018. In 2019, the percentage of anti-Semitic actions in the world are already significantly up over last year. Now, a book recently came out by Deborah Lipstadt, a professor at Emory University, an author uh, of this book. is called Anti-Semitism Here and Now. Just came out, and in it, she writes this. It is hard, if not impossible, to explain something that is essentially irrational, delusional, and absurd. At its heart, she explains, anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory, and in its most extreme case, it manifests in the belief that Jews are responsible for the evil of the world. Persisting through millennia across different cultures and regions, the belief that Jews are not an enemy, but the ultimate enemy, is what makes anti-Semitism different from all other prejudices. And that's the thing. Yes, there are prejudices in the world. Yes, there's bigotry and there's intolerance in the world. But anti-Semitism is different because it looks at an entire people group and not only sees them as different, not only puts them down, but sees them as the blame for the world's ills. And so right now, while Democrats in Congress are debating whether or not to censure words and language against anti-Semitism. I don't know if you've heard about all this, but the freshman congresswoman, what is it, Ilhan Omar, is that her name? Ilhan Omar has been speaking out against the Jewish people ever since she got in. And so they're writing up a a statement, ooh, that'll get her, you know, that, that is to censure 
bigotry and anti-Semitic behavior, but there was an outcry from the progressive left, and so now, rather than a a bill that censures anti-Semitism, it's just going to be a generic, you know, for anyone who you might say something negative about. Anti-Semitism is different. The devil has waged an historic campaign, and we've been talking about this, a campaign of death and destruction and deception against Israel and twisting the very nature of the Jewish people and twisting the world's view of all the good that has been brought to the world through Israel. And again, we looked at that, I believe, last week. But all of Satan's attempts... And all of this negativity toward the Jewish people is about to completely fail. It will come to naught. Yes, the throwdown is coming. But following his devastating defeat in the heavenly places, verses 7 through 9, Satan finally gets it, realizes he's out of time, so he goes even harder after the woman with a no-holds-barred, spare-no-expense, all-in, all-out devastating attack. And he can't get his hands on her. Because as you know from verse 6, she's in a place prepared where she will be nourished. I love that. He loses. And he loses big time. But before we get there, something else to note about the devil. It says, verse 13, he was thrown down to the earth and he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And I want you to note that word persecuted. It's dioko. Dioko in the Greek. And it literally means, get this, persecuted, to put to flight, to chase down, or to hunt. That's persecution. It's more than just someone doing something negative or bad against you. It's someone who's chasing you down. It's someone who's stalking you to death. It's someone who's pursuing to destroy. That's persecution. That's what he's doing. And by the way, Paul uses the same word in Acts 26 verse 11 talking about himself when he said, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, or some translations say persecuting them. The word is dioko. I kept hunting them down even to foreign cities. That's what the devil does. Satan, who is like 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, a roaring lion prowling around seeking to devour, he's on the hunt. He's chasing down. And as we said Sunday, he does not let up. He's thrown down now in a rage and immediately sets Israel to flight. Why? Because A, he's going to take as many people down with him as possible. Knowing his time is short. If I'm going to go, I'm going to take everybody I can with me. B, launching a last-ditch effort against Israel. Why? In hopes of thwarting God's prophetic plan. Destroy Israel, destroy Bible prophecy. Destroy Bible prophecy, and you make God into a liar. What Satan doesn't get is prophecy is not what might happen. Prophecy is not what could happen. Prophecy is what God has already seen happen. The I am, outside of space, time, and dimension, has already seen the end from the beginning, and He's declared the end from the beginning so that we would know He is God. So these are not things that may be. These are things that are. And the kingdom is coming, and the devil can't stop it. 
The prophesied kingdom of God, it's unstoppable. Hebrews 12.28, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God. Our God is a consuming fire. So the devil comes down. He goes after Israel. He pursues. He persecutes. But verse 14, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place. What place? The place prepared by God where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the great tribulation is the time, times, and half a time. The last half of the seven years. And during that last half, Israel is given the two wings of the eagle, flies to the place prepared. Two questions. Number one, how do they get there? And number two, where is this place? Good questions. Thank you for asking. First of all, how did they get there? And verse 14 tells us the two wings of the great eagle. And notice it's not two wings of a great eagle. It's the two wings of the great eagle. It has the definite article there. So we're talking about this eagle that is known. This eagle that is specific. The eagle comes to Israel's aid with a great airlift. I was asked again this last week if there were any references to America in the end times. Is there anything in the scriptures that that talks about America? I can tell you in Daniel 11, there's a reference to ships from the West. Perhaps. I think I've mentioned there's a reference to the young lion, which some have said may be America. But here, what about this? The eagle, the two wings of the great eagle. What is our national symbol? And do you think that's lost on God? That the eagle is the symbol of America? It's what we see and think. When I see the eagle, that's what I think. I also think small animals beware. But mainly I think (laughs) the symbol of our country, our national symbol. Do you realize that if you crush an eagle's egg, you can be fined up to $5,000 or get three years in prison? Abortion? Whatever. But don't crush an eagle's egg. I wonder if that also goes to like frying or scrambling. I don't know. Anyway, don't do it. In America, the eagles are bird. And so the two wings of the great eagle. And America, by the way, is the only nation among all the nations of the earth that has stood consistently by Israel since her reinception in 1948. The only one. Other nations have come and gone with support, but America has stayed true, which, by the way, makes what's going on in Congress so critical right now. This country has stood by Israel. Just hours after David Ben-Gurion declared the independence of the new Jewish state in a little art museum there in Tel Aviv, quickly they had to scuttle it all together and make this declaration because it was on Shabbat. It's about to be the Sabbath. They were going to have to put it off. May 14th, 1948, he makes a declaration. And at 6.11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in America, President Harry S. Truman bypassed our State Department and was the first world leader to officially recognize the state of Israel. 
He threw his weight in behind Israel. Surprisingly, Russia would soon follow. After that, others started to fall in line and support the idea of the Jewish state in what was then called Palestine, a misnomer, but as the land of Judea and Samaria, and Israel became a nation. And I am certain of two things that we need to understand. Number one, that along with the biblical standards and godly ideals of Judeo-Christian ethics that are written into our Constitution, American support of Israel is why we have been so historically blessed by the Lord. We have stood by Israel. And so God says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. Genesis twelve fifteen, Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Well, America has loved Israel and has supported and stood by Israel. Well, I'm also convinced of something else. That not only are we blessed as a country because of our support of Israel, but now, 71 years later, this is the reason why America is so denounced in the Middle East. This is the reason the war on terror began. That we support Israel. This is why we no longer have the Twin Towers in New York City. This is why the Iraq War began and the war in Afghanistan began. This is why we've had to deal with ISIS over many years. Because there is a deep hatred for those who deeply love Israel. So the question is, when we look at verse 14, is could the two wings of the great eagle actually be a great American airlift coming into Jerusalem and winging Israel out of Jerusalem to a place prepared in the wilderness, to a place of safety? And in my opinion, probably not. (laughs) After all that, it's an interesting thought. It, It truly is. But... There's an influence that I believe maintains American loyalty to Israel today. There's a reason, a spiritual reason, why we stand alongside the Jewish state. And that influence is the Holy Spirit through His church. As Christians saying, we need to stand for God's chosen people. We need to support the people that God loves. But think about this. Remove that restraining influence. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul refers to the restraining influence. When the restraining influence is removed, guess what's going to happen? The enemy will come in like a flood. In fact, when the restraining influence is removed, that's when Antichrist will explode and do his thing. Remove the influence of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. By the way, that's the rapture of the church. Because God has uniquely connected His Spirit to the church, so when the church goes, His Spirit goes, at least in the broad-scale spectrum that the Spirit is functioning in and through the church today, we all go, and where there is no restraint, Antichrist floods. And the devil goes after it. And I, for one, believe that once we are raptured, I honestly think America's going to be gutted. There will no longer be any American support for Israel. As much as some might like to send a great American airlift, I don't think there's going to be a great America at the time. My opinion. Remove the restraining of the Holy Spirit and watch American support for the Jewish people fall. And again, it's already slipping. We're watching it slip. 
Ask House representatives, again, Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib, about how they feel about Israel and the Jewish people. It's not a positive answer. Well, if not America, you might ask, then who is the great eagle? This is obviously a known, a specific, a the great eagle. Well, who is it? Exodus 19, verse 4. God told Moses to tell the sons of Israel, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Deuteronomy 32.11 Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him and there was no foreign God with him. What are you saying, Rick? The great wings of, of of the great eagle, the two wings of the great eagle. The great eagle in Scripture is God. Refers to God the Father is a reference to God's care and covering and protection and even airlifting, if you will, of Israel. Now, I don't know how exactly he's going to do it. But I believe personally that God is going to supernaturally intervene to help his people flee, take flight, if you will, to the place prepared. Where is this place? Where is this place? Well, we've talked about it before. I've had a couple different teachings on this over the years. And while we can't say with certainty, we can make a very good, educated, biblical guess. And I'm going to give you more that I've not given you before as we consider this location. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 16. Matthew 24, 16. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay. Which mountains? The closest... Mountains in a flight from Jerusalem, if you go west from Jerusalem, you're just going to go out toward the sea. You go east from Jerusalem, you flee from Jerusalem, you head straight to the mountains of Moab, Jordan. Moab is the place of the fleeing, I believe. They, they rush out, and among those mountains, there lies an amazing rock-walled fortress called Petra. And some of you have been there. Some of you have walked in and through Petra. It's an interesting place. Petra means rock. Remember that. The rose-red city of Petra, it was built in the 3rd century B.C. by people known as the Nabataeans. Probably descendants of the Edomites. It spans an area that is 10 square miles It's in the mountains of Jordan, as I said. It's a walled city carved right out of red sandstone. And that red sandstone gives off 30 to 40 different shades of pinks and reds from the stony walls. It's really quite a sight to see. It has a single 12-foot entrance, 12 feet wide. You cannot get an army in there to rush through there. Easy to block off, easy to protect, and it has walls ranging in height from 200 all the way up to 1,000 feet in some places. Just getting into Petra is a fascinating walk, but when you go through the slim channel between these rock walls and finally come out into the opening, well, first you see the treasury. The treasury is that scene from Indiana Jones where they come riding in and, you know, there's not much behind there. It's beautifully carved. But then you hang a right from the treasury and head on down and it just opens out. And it's this massive opening, this, this huge area. And prophecy students and Bible scholars for decades, if not centuries, have said, Petra's the place. 
Petra is the place in the wilderness. It is an expansive location that could hold hundreds of thousands of people easily for three and a half years of protection. But there's a whole lot more behind why you would think Petra. In the late 1800s, American evangelist William E. Blackstone had tens of thousands of Hebrew New Testaments placed into clay pots and hidden in the little caves all over Petra. Now again, if you've seen Petra, you know there are caves everywhere. And, and the, caves, the caves were not dwellings, they were actually mostly tombs. But Blackstone got in there with these Hebrew Bibles and stuck them in all the tombs. He's planning ahead. This is a place prepared. <laughs> he was thinking, hey, the Jewish people are going to be there. They're going to need the Word. So, if they go there, they'll find it. Interesting. Now, some would say, well, William Blackstone was a nut. Why would you waste all the time and money and energy and resource to do that? Why Petra? Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Micah 2, 12. Just notate this, but listen. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. And I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men or a noisy multitude of men. So Micah chapter 2 prophesies a time where God's going to take the remnant of Israel, put them in a sheep pen where they're all going to be gathered. And and like a, a noisy bunch of sheep, they're going to be there in that place, probably rejoicing in their protection and in their salvation. I will put them together like sheep in a fold. And those who have flown over Petra, and you can see aerial views of it, they describe it as looking like a giant ancient sheep pen. A perfectly formed area where you could, you know, if you were a shepherd, you'd go, that'd be a place to keep like massive numbers of sheep. But something else is interesting in Micah chapter 12, verse 2, or or, sorry, 2 verse 12. It says, I will put them together like sheep in the fold. And the word fold in the Hebrew is Basra. Basra. In the region of southern Jordan that was once called Basra in Eden is the location of Petra. Petra's in Basra. I'm going to take the remnant of Israel and put them in the sheepfold, the sheep Basra. Hint, hint. Note, note. Perhaps we're talking about Petra. Well, turn to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. It's another passage that we haven't looked at before, at least in our studies here at the bridge. And I think it has great relevance to this whole idea of Petra being the location of of the place prepared by God in the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 33. And we'll pick it up in about verse 13. Let's go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 33, 13. Building a case for a stronghold of rock, a safe place, a sheep pen, a place in Basra, a place fleeing from Jerusalem in the mountains, as Jesus said. You start to add it all up, and verse 13 of Isaiah 33 says, You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. 
Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hand so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. Verse 16, watch this. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock or the stronghold of rock. And his bread will be given him and his water will be sure. So verse 16 of Isaiah 33, interesting, talks about salvation in a stronghold of rock where bread and water will be plentiful, will be provided. You might even say will be nourishment. God nourishing his people in the place prepared is Isaiah talking about Petra. Well, if he's not here, he is in another place. Go a little further back to Isaiah chapter 16. And this is a key passage. Isaiah 16 verse 1. To get a little more specificity on the idea that we may be looking at Petra as the place prepared. Check this out. Verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Now the lamb, this is the, the implication at the time was a, a lamb of tribute. But it's very interesting because we all know who the lamb is. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Mountain of the daughter of Zion. Well, Selah in the wilderness, and he's about to talk about Moab. That's where Selah is. It's in Moab. Well, the mount, there's not a mountain of the daughter of Zion there. There's a mountain, however, where the daughter of Zion may be residing in the tribulation. But send the lamb from Selah by way of the wilderness. Selah. Selah in the Hebrew means rock. Its exact equivalent word in the Greek is Petra. If you were reading the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word used in Isaiah 16 verse 1 for Selah is Petra. From the rock by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Verse 2, then like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. At the fords of Arnon. Arnon is a Hebrew word that means rushing stream. The root word actually means shout. So think about a noisy, rushing stream, waters that flow quickly. I mean, have you ever stood by a flowing river or a waterfall and tried to have a quiet conversation? You know, you just can't do it. And so the fords of Arnon, this is a noisy place where much water is rushing. In fact, today it's called the Wadi Mujib. The Wadi Mujib. And this wadi has waters that rush 45 miles from the desert highlands of Jordan all the way down to the Dead Sea in Israel. The wadi Mujib. It stands as it flows into the Dead Sea opposite a place called Engedi, where David hid out from Saul. And there at the wadi Mujib, at the fords, literally it's the northern border of Moab. Moab, which is Jordan. Okay, if, we, if you don't know, we've talked about this before. Jordan is actually three ancient nations all wrapped up into one. The, the country of Jordan today 
Edom in the south, Moab in the middle, and Ammon in the north. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites make up Jordan. And I think I've shared before that if you talk to Jordanians today, they don't think of themselves as Jordanians. Depending on where they live, they think of themselves as Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. Which is why the capital city of Jordan is Ammon. Ammon. So the Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites. So right there in the middle is Moab. And at the top border of Moab are the fords of Arnon. That's just north then of the Dead Sea. If you're fleeing out of Jerusalem, you cut right across the desert through the wilderness and you end up at the fords of Arnon at Moab, which is exactly what the prophecy is telling us. Now you might say, yeah, but it says, it says the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. What are the daughters of Moab doing there? Prophetically, I suggest to you that the daughters of Moab may refer to Jordanian distant relatives of the Moabites who are there at the fords of Arnon at the Wadi Mujib at this time to receive and help Jews fleeing out of Jerusalem to the place prepared. Meeting up with them there. Receiving them and helping them across and on down to where Petra is located. But hold that thought. Verse 3, give us advice, make a decision, cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from who? What do your Bible say? The destroyer. We know who the destroyer is. He has a name, the devil and Satan, the old serpent. Hide them from the destroyer. For the extortioner has come to the to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. This is fascinating. The extorter, the destroyer, the oppressor is about to be done. So we, we can time place this prophecy at that time where the destroyer is about to be wiped out. This is right at this midpoint of tribulation. That is being talked about prophetically here. Now, you might stop and say, but hang on. I thought Israel was fleeing. And when you read this, daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. But then it says, let the outcasts of Moab stay with you in verse 4. So it sounds like the ones fleeing are Moabites. The Hebrew phrase there in verse 4, let the outcasts of Moab stay with you, can be translated two ways. And this is really important to get. It can be translated, as we read in the New American Standard Bible, let the outcasts of Moab stay with you, be a hiding place to them, or it can just as easily, just as rightly be translated, let mine outcasts dwell with thee, Moab, be a hiding place for them. Both translations are good. You might say, well, but, but, but they're different. <laughs> so which one is it? Well, I already told you. Both translations are good. The first translation, what we read here in the New American Standard, let the outcasts of Moab be with you, was a short-term prophecy. That on the short term, historically, the Moabites, this prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled short term because the people of Moab, the daughters of Moab, from the fords of Arnon fled to get away from Assyria three years after Isaiah wrote this prophecy. So hide those from Moab who are now fleeing away from the Assyrians. Why would God care about Moab? Well, God cares for the Moabites. 
That's a longer story than I have time for right now. But they fled the destructive power of Assyria, fleeing to the south. From the fords of Arnon, in the north of Moab, they just began rushing southward. Verse 2, look up at verse 2 again. Like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, they're just in utter confusion. That's the picture here of scattered nestlings, not knowing where they're going, a frantic flight in any and all direction. That was the previous short-term fulfillment. So it's a good translation to say, let the outcasts of Moab stay with you and be a hiding place to them. But it was a short-term fulfillment, and we know it must be bigger because the hiding place is from the destroyer, not only just a destroyer like Assyria, but the destroyer, the devil, who is coming to an end. So this thrusts us all the way up to the time when Satan is about to meet his final end. Israel arrives at the Wadi Mushib to be received by Jordanians who I believe are doing at that point the right thing. And so the translation is also good. Let my outcasts dwell with thee, Moab, and be a hiding place to them. So I think, just Pastor Rick thinking out loud here, when I read this and and consider these things, that the Jordanians will be there, some will be at the border to receive Israel and help them flee south. And they begin helping them get down all the way through Moab, all the way through that midsection of Jordan, getting them down to Edom, to Basra, to Petra, the place prepared. Look at verse, well let's see, did we do verse 3 and 4? Yeah, we did, okay. There's a hint, by the way, in Daniel, and you might want to just notate this. Don't turn there right now, but note this, because Daniel tells us something fascinating. Three nations are going to escape the power of Antichrist. Just three are specifically mentioned. Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, He, that is Antichrist, will enter the beautiful land, Israel, and many will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of Ammon. Jordan is going to be protected from Antichrist. As we put these pieces together, what we see happening is the Antichrist comes into, Satan comes into Israel in a fury to destroy the Jewish people. They flee, and they flee right into the place that is protected from the hands of the Antichrist. He can't touch them. He can't touch Jordan. Interesting. Ammon, Moab, Edom, that's all of Jordan. Why is this nation, this, these three nations, why are they rescued out of the hand of the Antichrist? I believe because they're housing Israel. They're helping Israel. By the way, of all the Middle Eastern countries around Israel, Jordan is their best neighbor. And yes, Jordan is filled with Arabs, again, of Ammonite, Moabite, and Edomite descent, but they're good neighbors to Israel. They've only ever fought Israel when they've had to be drawn in by their Arab brothers of surrounding nations where they didn't so much have a choice. Yeah, you always have a choice. But I believe they fought Israel from a position of weakness rather than a position of seeking dominance. So interesting, Jordan is protected. Israel flees in this direction. One other thing about Jordan here. And note this, in the judgment of nations, Jesus has one standard by which nations that survive the tribulation, and there will be many, will be welcomed into the kingdom. 
And that standard is Matthew 25, verse 40. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. That is the standard for a nation being received into the kingdom of God is how they treated Israel. These brothers of mine. One more verse here in Isaiah 16. Look at verse 5. A throne will even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And that clearly tells us this prophecy is not something that took place when Assyria drove Moab south. This prophecy is yet future. Isaiah is talking about Selah, Petra, the place in the wilderness. The judge here in verse 5 is none other than Jesus in His coming. And He will establish His kingdom in loving kindness and in faithfulness and in righteousness just as Isaiah prophesied. In the meantime... It's meantime for Israel. I mean, literally. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, there's nothing like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Zechariah 13, verse 8, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. Two parts of the population of the Jews will perish in the tribulation. One-third will be saved. One third will come through. It says they will be refined as silver is refined and tested as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. And the reason I mention this again is yes, they flee to a place prepared. Yes, they're going to be nourished there. Yes, once they arrive there in perhaps Petra, in that stronghold of rock, yes, they will finally be safe. But it's going to be a hellish nightmare getting there. It's going to be awful. It is the time of Jacob's distress. And yet, God knowing this is going to nourish His people in this place that He has prepared for them. I want you to make application. I encourage you to make application to yourself, to your own life to when the devil is chasing you down, when he's hunting you, when you are persecuted, or when you're in pain, or when you're dealing with some kind of hardship or some kind of issue in your life, something you don't see how to get to the other side of it. God has eagle's wings for you. The great wings of the great eagle. He's got wings for you, Isaiah 40, 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And you know, the first thing, and this is in my own life, and it's what I counsel, the very first thing to do when it's all falling apart and everything seems tragic and you're not sure how you're going to get through the day is wait. Just wait. Don't flee like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings. Don't take off in a panic. Oh no, oh no, we've got to fix this. What are we going to do? I don't know what we're going to... Wait. Wait on the Lord. Just stop. I remember early on as a a young husband, 
And I was still trying to figure out, how do you pay bills? I, that was a new thing for me. My parents always pay bills. What do I, you know, you got to save money and pay stuff every month? I didn't know. And the bills were coming in and I would, and I would panic and I would worry. And I learned something back then. And that's then that when a bill came in that I didn't have money for to pay that day, I had 30 days to pay it. Now that's not exactly wisdom in paying bills, but I learned something else from that. And that is not to panic. That when the bill comes due, it rarely comes due that day. That when the tragedy strikes, when the call comes from the doctor, when the friend turns their back, when the hardship happens, or when you literally are facing direct persecution for your Christian faith, the answer doesn't have to happen that second, that day. Oftentimes, there's time to wait. So you wait. You stop. You pray. You say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get from Jerusalem to that stronghold. That's a long way. And by the way, it is a long way. Their flight will be quite a distance just to get from where they are to the place prepared. I don't know how to get there, Lord. I don't see the way. I don't know how I'm going to survive. You stop, you wait, you pray. Let Him give you the two wings of the great eagle because He's the great eagle. He's the one who lifts us up and brings us to the place prepared. And note that Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know what? You don't even have to know the way. He's coming to get you. He will receive you to bring you to where He is. And I believe He's talking about the rapture of the church, but I also believe Jesus by His Spirit is saying, right here, right now, when you don't know the way, wait on the Lord. I'll give you the wings and I will receive you. I'll come get you and take you where you need to be. Be at peace. Trust the Lord. The two wings of the great eagle. Well, back in Revelation 12, the people do flee. They're given the two wings of the great eagle. They fly into the place in the wilderness. I do think, Petra, I've got like a 99%. So I'm going to allow myself 1% just in case I'm missing something. But I think that's where they're going. And they flee to this place prepared. They're nourished for that final three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. I love that. Verse 15. So what does he do? Oh, well, they got away. Just let him go. Just let him go. Verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But... The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And I'm like, what are, are we reading Lord of the Rings here? <laughs> this is crazy. This is just, what a wild picture that's just been painted for us. And by the way, the word poured there is literally threw up. That's the word. Look it up. It's balo. So, diabolos, diabolo, is now dia throwing up. 
water comes pouring out of his mouth, a flood water like a river. And by the way, speaking of Antichrist, Daniel said in Daniel 9.26, his end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, Bible scholars read this and they, and they debate. Is this a literal flood? Or is this perhaps an army? Or a flood of attacks? Or a flood of demons? Or, or some kind of entities that, that Satan opens his mouth, the dragon is just a picture opening his mouth, and blah, how comes all of these fighting forces to flood up against Israel as they're fleeing? Well, man, that's happened before, hasn't it? They fled Egypt. And what happened? The army followed. Of course, the flood had a different ramification then as that army drowned in the Red Sea. Is it an army, perhaps, that, that's chasing them down? Bombs, maybe, that are going off? Now, those who say it can't be a literal flood, they look at the terrain. And, and truly, if you look at the terrain from Jerusalem, which is at a high point, all the way down to the Dead Sea region, which, by the way, is the lowest body of water on the planet. It's the lowest below sea level of, of anywhere on Earth. All the way down there, and then you got to start going back up into the mountains of Moab, and once you start going up through those mountains and those rocky places into Edom and, and to Petra and in that direction, how, you can't do a flood. Flood would, I mean, waters would just go down into all the wadis and dissipate. You couldn't, hey, if the people of Israel are in Petra, Petra could be flooded. They're in that sheep pen, that sheep fold, Basra. And the devil tries to inundate them and flood them out and drive them out by what that that would be a tactic that could work. I think it's a literal flood we're talking about. And the only reason I think it's a literal flood is because the Bible doesn't give me any indication that it's anything else. So let's just take it as a literal flood, flood waters sent, spewed out of the mouth of the dragon to flood. Petra or the place prepared to drive the people out, but it doesn't work. The earth helps. Yay, earth. Maybe we should have Earth Day, you know, to celebrate. The earth, I love the verse, opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Wait. <laughs> really? I mean, you really don't think the earth... And close? Is, is that what you're telling us? No, I, I'm not telling you that. The Bible's telling you that. And we've seen it before. This is not the only time where the earth swallowed up. Think about this. They, they stood up against Moses with great contempt. Their names were Korah and Dathan, and Abiram. And in Numbers chapter 16, if you want to turn there, you can, or just listen, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book, chapter 16, we read the story. Let me give you the brief version. Number 16, verse 1. You can keep turning there if you are. I'll, I'll go ahead and start. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi. So this is a priest. And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. Men of action. Verse 2, they rose up before 
Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown, at least they thought so. Legends in their own minds. They assembled together, verse 3, against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? How dare you boss us, lord it over us. And so Korah and Dathan and Abiram and on, they come against Moses. Moses is not thrilled, but God is truly angered by this whole thing. If you look down in verse 28, first they were all told to bring censers and come to the tent of meeting. Well, Dathan and Abiram say, now nah, we're not going to show. So Moses and the guys, they all head over to the camps of Dathan and Abiram. And in verse 28, number 16, Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do these deeds, for this is not my doing. By the way, if you're serving God, you don't have to worry about whether or not people give you credit for it. Just do what He told you to do. Trust Him. If you know He's told you to do it, do it. And if people don't think it's of the Lord, that's okay. They don't have to. You know. Moses says, look, this is not my doing. This whole thing, this whole deliverance thing. In fact, if these guys had been with Moses at the burning bush, they would have learned it wasn't Moses' doing. He didn't even want to do it. This is not of me. Verse 29, he says, if these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So if what you see happen here today is just a normal thing, typical among people, then I'm not God's man. But, verse 30, if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As He finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions, and they, and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. I love verse 34. All Israel who are around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up! This is wild! Moses described what would happen, and it happened exactly as he said. But what's interesting to me is this is the only other time in all the Bible where the earth opens its mouth to swallow something up, or in this case, someone. What on earth has this got to do with the earth swallowing up the flood of Satan? I mean, these seem like two completely disparate stories, unrelated And by the way, why on earth would God do such a thing? Open it up and swallow and down they go and disappear? Listen, the answer is the same for both stories. God protects His servants. God protects His servants in the same way that Korah and Dathan and Abiram barfed up a flood of insurrection. And we're leading the people in a mutiny against Moses, so the dragon threw up water out of his mouth to destroy Israel. The focus was the same. 
The dragon in both situations was trying to destroy Israel. With Korah and Dathan and Abiram, he was trying to destroy Israel from within, from the leaders. And so they, they, mar- they marshal this insurrection, and the earth swallows them up. Well, now the devil is trying again to destroy Israel, this time with a flood of water. And what happens? The earth opens up and swallows them up. And any good Jew who knows his good Jewish history will remember the story and realize that God protects his servants. He always protects his servants. Both of these attacks fail as the earth swallows them up. And there is a single verse that brings both stories together beautifully. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. Now, note that. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Say, a flood from the dragon? It can't harm you. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. Korah, Dathan, Abiram... But then listen to what God says. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Now you may hear that and say, yeah, but but what if it has? What if evil has prospered against me? Let me just ask, by a show of hands, how many of you in this room here tonight can honestly say that evil has never prospered against you? Put another way, how many of you know that evil things have happened to you? Okay, pretty much everybody but Rachel. (laughs) She's led a charmed life. Wait a minute, no weapon formed against me will prosper. But what if weapons of sickness or anxiety or personal attack or even persecution have prospered against me? What if I feel like, wait a minute, but I've been hunted down. Evil has prospered against me. Listen closely. Even if it kills you dead. Every weapon fired at a servant of the Lord will ultimately fail. It cannot prosper against you. We see everything from such a temporary perspective. God sees everything eternally. Yeah, attacks will come. Light and momentary troubles, afflictions will strike. Perhaps in this life, it may even kill you. So... If you're eternal, big deal. Not a problem. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. That's the issue. Rather, fear Him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's God the Father. You're going to fear someone? Fear the Lord. Don't fear evil. Don't fear those who come against you in the name of the devil. Don't fear persecution or hardship or difficulty in the life. Don't fear that stuff. The heritage of the servant of the Lord is no weapon formed against you can prosper. Even if you die in the process, your heritage, your vindication is from the Lord. 
So the earth swallowed up the water. Israel is protected. He can't get to them. They're in the place prepared and protected. And what does the devil do? Well, I guess I can't do anything else here. Let's call it a day. Let's take a break. We went after Israel. This is the best that we threw the best that we had against them, so I guess, I guess we lose. No. Verse 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and what does he do? He went off to make war with the rest of her children. Pastor John Corson's daughter, Jessie, died at the age of 16 in a car accident. That's not fair. He's a pastor. He's a teacher of the Word. And his daughter died, by the way, on the same road, on a patch of ice, the exact same way John's first wife, Terry, died in a car accident 12 years earlier. So he loses his first wife. 12 years later, his daughter, Jessie, 16 years old, dies on the same road. His oldest son, Peter John Corson, just died of colon cancer three weeks ago. I thought no weapon formed against you. Pastor Greg Laurie's son, Christopher, died in a car accident back in 2008. He was on his way to Harvest Christian Fellowship where his dad was preaching that night. Pastor Levi Lusco, his daughter, his six-year-old daughter, Lenya died of a severe asthma attack five days before Christmas 2012. Levi Lusco preached the Christmas service five days later. Don't think for a moment that when the devil sees that he can't get to you, he won't go after your children. This is very serious because Satan is serious. And I don't want you to miss this, that the dragon went off to make war with the rest of her children. If he can't get to you, hey, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Take my life if you have to, devil. Whatever, I'm with Jesus. I've got eternity to look forward to. And so he's enraged. And when he can't get to you, he will go after those you love the most. He will go after those who matter the most to you. As a parent, for Cheryl and I, that's our kids. You can mess with a lot of things. You can mess with me all you want. Don't go after my children. But the devil went off to make war with the rest of her children. And and why, why would you choose to serve God knowing that if the devil can't get to you, he's going to go after those you love the most. Why would you serve God? Why not just drive for UPS? And if you do, that's fine. It's okay. Why set yourself up for that? Why set your children up for that? One reason. Because as much as I love my children, I love Jesus more. Why would you ever serve God at the risk of people you love? Because you love Him more. And by the way, the more you love Jesus, the more love you will have for your children, or your friends, or your family, or your husband, or your wife. you got to love Him more. He, he's the deal. He's the whole thing. And by the way, as much as you love 
brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and friends, and yes, children, as much as you love them, God loves them infinitely more than you do. But I want you to be alert to this. I don't tell you this to freak you out. But we must understand that the battle that Satan wages is not theoretical. It's not academic. It's real. Luke 4 verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. So he tried everything he could, threw it all at Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. When it didn't work, he left deciding, I'll be back. I'll come again. I'll attack from a different angle. And when he had Jesus nailed to the cross, he thought, this is it, I've got him. It's done. Until, of course, the resurrection, because no weapon formed against you as a servant of the Lord will prosper. But when Satan is defeated in the moment, he will look for another opportunity. And the other opportunity may be another person in your circle. And you need to be aware of that. But Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, verse 51, Behold, I tell a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25, verse 8. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Hosea 13, verse 14. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication. God says it comes from me. It comes from me. But but, but what about my kids? You love God and trust them to Him. What about about my wife? I've told you the story, haven't I? When Cheryl was so sick, when she was in the hospital, she had blood sepsis. And on this particular night, I, I had been with her in the hospital several nights in a row and I was tired and I needed to get some rest. So I went home to rest and her mom came and stayed at the hospital for one night and I was going to come back first thing in the morning. And I get home and I'm lying there in bed and I start to Google, never a good idea at night. I'm Googling sepsis. I'm Googling specifics about Cheryl's condition. And I'm reading one out of four people die of sepsis. Oh, that's, that's not going to be Cheryl. And I sat down my phone and I drifted off to sleep and about two o'clock in the morning my phone rang and it was Cheryl's mother saying, Rick, you need to get down here right now. She's crashing. They've got the crash card in the room. There's like 15 doctors in the hall. They're about to move her to to ICU. All right, I'll be right there. And I set my phone down 
And this, this is one of the most, I've shared this before, I know I have. I'm sharing it again tonight because for me this is one of the most vivid moments in all my life about exactly what I'm telling you right now. I set down the phone and I said, Jesus, I can't do this without her. I'm no good at fathering all by myself. I need a break sometimes. I need, some, I need Cheryl. I can't do this without her. And immediately, immediately, I heard the Lord say, your eyes are on the wrong person. And I was like, you're right. You're right. And in that moment I said, all right, if I lose her tonight, I can't do this alone. But I can do this with you. I will trust you. And I got dressed and I got in the car and got out there and Cheryl was in ICU for a week and there are all kinds of really fun stories with that. We'll tell you another time. In that moment, I realized I loved Cheryl more than I was trusting Jesus. And that's never a good place to be. To love your ladies, your husbands, more than you love the Lord? Hey, your husbands cannot save you. The Lord can and husbands, you, you think, ah, I can't do this without my Yeah, you can. Don't look at your wife, you look at Jesus. And your children, you look at Jesus. And your friends, you trust Jesus. And I will say one more thing about this, and I know I'm way off topic here. Well, no, I'm not, but I'm off notes. One more thing about this to understand in this, in this whole process of trusting the Lord and entrusting yourself to Him that when He matters most, what I've seen happen over time, and right now I'm speaking specifically to parents of children that you have seen go off the rails because the enemy has attacked them. What I always say to moms and dads is, hey, I am watching adults right and left coming to faith in Jesus. I have seen a number of people come to faith in Jesus after their own parents had passed away and did not get to see that. So rather than spending a lifetime worried about what the devil might be doing to my kids or how the devil might influence my kids or how he might take them out, rather than worrying, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. Trust the Lord. You trust the Lord and you entrust everyone you care about and love. You entrust them to Him. But I want to do something else. Great. Pray. Pray for them. It's the most powerful thing you can possibly do. Well, let me finish up. So verse 17, he goes off to make war with the rest of her children. I assume this is the Jewish remnant who are outside of Israel. This will be Jews on the planet too far to get to Selah. To be airlifted to Petra. Perhaps. It also would include surviving Gentile converts at this time in the tribulation. Those who have not been beheaded. Who it includes here, note this, the rest of her children who, number one, keep the commandments of God, and number two, hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's all we have to do. In fact, summed up right there is, there's your salvation. Just do two things. Keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And someone might go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about grace? 
What do you mean keep the commandments of God? Isn't that why we need grace? Well, yeah, but here it says keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, so it's not grace? The word keep is tereo in the Greek, and it can be translated either those who observe the commandments of God, but it can also be translated, get this, those who preserve the commandments of God. If you come into my office, you'll see there are all kinds of books up on the shelf. Many of them well-preserved. I- I've never read them. <laughs> No, every book in there I've referenced or I've checked out or maybe I've read a passage from. I can't say that I've read cover to cover every book. So technically, I haven't observed all the writings of all the books in my office, but I've preserved them. They're there. They're important to me. They matter to me. That's what I think is going on here. Man, do the commandments matter to you? They do to me. Am I capable of keeping them all? No. No. I failed many times, especially thou shalt not murder. That's a tough one for me. I don't know why. But <laughs> no, we, we do what we can, but we understand we are saved by grace. And yet, my friends, I love this word. I love the word of God. I preserve this in my heart. I keep it with all my might and I do not keep it to perfection, but I preserve it in my life. I hang on every word that is spoken in the Scriptures. Psalm 119 says, Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Remember this song? O Lord, I remember Your name in the night and keep Your law. This has become mine, that I preserve Your precepts. This is what I'm about, this word. This is what I'm doing, this word. Is it what I'm keeping perfectly? No. But man, I'm preserving it. And that's what he's talking about. Those who love the word who keep the word and who hold to the testimony of Jesus because the testimony of Jesus is what saves us. Verse 1 of chapter 13, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now I read that because the best Greek manuscripts attach that to verse 17 of chapter 12. So really, chapter 12, verse 17 should read read that the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, and the dragon stood on, literally, on the sea. Not on the sand of the seashore, but the literal Greek there is the dragon stood on the sea. Meaning what? The sea here may very well be describing the sea of humanity. Because Antichrist, the beast, is the beast from the sea. Coming up out of the sea of humanity, we'll talk more about that on Sunday, but the dragon stood on the sea. Get a picture here, like a bully with his foot on the neck of his prey. The dragon's got his foot on the neck of the sea of humanity, and out of this sea, Antichrist will rise to his full evil potential. Yet, yet, for the servants of the Lord... No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. There is great hope. There is a place prepared where all death is swallowed up in victory and Jesus, He's going to fly us there. So until then, we wait. We wait for Him.